A reading from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for speaking to us. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, we pray that, that your spirit would, would move in us, that you would uh, reveal things in us that we may not want to see. But most importantly, God, we, we pray that your spirit would show us Jesus. We ask that his name would be magnified as we read these words about him. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to encounter him together this morning. Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Well, I read an article this week about the rise of nerd culture. And some of you may be thinking, yes, we're like we've made it. And others are thinking, what are you talking about? And that's okay. Uh, but the author began by, by talking about how of all of the reversals that we have seen take place in our culture, this is one that he is most surprised about. And he writes, if you told me in 1988 that the group of oddballs who sold me and my friends our comic books every Saturday would come to dominate the mainstream, part of me would have wanted to believe you but wouldn't have. But he wanted to describe how, our, how social mores have, have shifted 180 degrees to the point where people refer to themselves all of the time as nerds, and they take a degree of pride in it. And we have nerds in, in so many different uh, sections. It's, I think that's such a fun thing for people dropping off their kids to walk into. Nerds! Um, anyway. We have tech nerds, we have music nerds, we have cinema nerds, nerds in every space. And to call oneself a nerd nowadays is almost a form of humble brag. Why? Because it implies that you know a lot about a given thing, 
If I'm a cinema nerd, it means that I have seen a lot of, of movies, and I know movies deeply. But I think it's worth asking the question, is knowledge enough to make a person wise? Can we consider a person wise because they know a lot about a given subject? Well, the biblical answer over and over again is no. Knowledge is not enough. And our text this morning begins with a question. In verse 13, James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? And I think from the outset, it would be good for us to internalize that question. Who is wise and understanding in your life? What characteristics do you look to and say, that, that is a mark of wisdom. What, quali- what qualities have you seen in, in other people that amount to wisdom? Well, in the verses that follow, James shows us what wisdom is by juxtaposing the wisdom of the world with true wisdom, that is, the wisdom from above. So we're going to spend our time together this morning looking at each of those things in turn. We'll first look at the nature and fruit of false wisdom, followed by the nature and fruit of true wisdom. So let's go ahead and jump now into the nature and fruit of false wisdom. James begins his description of false wisdom in verses 14 and 15. There we read, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now, I think we would all be best served by this text if we begin here and now by identifying that there is a little bit of this in every single one of us. Somewhere in our hearts, even if it's to a very small degree, we are going to find bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So may the Spirit right now begin to reveal those areas where those things may have taken a foothold. But before getting into the specific characteristics of true wisdom, right, James takes some time here to describe its opposite. According to James, one cannot be wise while holding on to or pursuing, maintaining a spirit of jealousy and selfish ambition. And I think that's an interesting point to note because jealousy and selfish ambition can spur a person on to acquire knowledge, can't it? The 4th century philosopher and theologian and just like all-around baller, uh, Augustine of Hippo, talked about this very thing. You may not think of Augustine as a baller, but he is, I promise. When he first encountered philosophy as a young man, it met a deep existential longing in his heart. And in his famous work, The Confessions, he wrote, Suddenly, Every vain hope became empty to me, and I longed for the immortality of wisdom with an incredible ardor in my heart. But as an older man, looking back, he recognized that it wasn't actually wisdom that he was pursuing at that time. Instead, it was knowledge for its own sake, or more to the point, knowledge for the sake of being seen as someone who possesses knowledge. I think we can all identify with that to a degree. He called this disordered relationship to wisdom curiositas. Curiositas is a counterfeit wisdom driven more by selfish ambition and being seen as enlightened than a genuine quest for truth. And ironically, 
Augustine points out that those who pursued this counterfeit wisdom end up, according to him, hating the truth for the sake of the object which they love instead of the truth. They love the truth for the light it sheds, but hate it when it shows them up as being wrong. See, selfish ambition and jealousy make a mess of wisdom. And the truth is, selfish ambition and jealousy make a mess of everything. But we are bombarded with messages that tell us that if we are not the best, if we don't reach the top, then we're not anything. In the words of Ricky Bobby, if you're not first, you're last. We've been told over and over again that the only way to achieve greatness is by having a singular vision. And I think one of the places where we see this on clear display is in the world of sports. We are constantly trying to figure out who is the greatest person to play whatever game we're, we're talking about at that given moment. And we give high praise to those willing to sacrifice anything to reach the highest levels. We ignore terrible and destructive behavior because we see it as somehow the cost of greatness. And I think there are many who believe that it is impossible to achieve without selfish ambition or jealousy. The drive to be on top, that singular vision to be the best. And this is why I have been super intrigued by Nikola Jokic of the Denver Denver Nuggets. Uh, The Nuggets, if you didn't know, uh, won the NBA Finals this year. It's the first time in franchise history, 50 years no championship until this year. And in a bunch of things I've read about him, and full disclosure, um, all of my knowledge of him has come from reading because I didn't watch a single basketball game this year. Uh, but from what I've read, he's often called a generational talent. And if you disagree with that, then go to the sources that I read. Don't argue with me because I'm indifferent to that. Uh, but he is an extremely gifted leader, a great player, and, and no doubt he has worked incredibly hard to get to the position that he's in. But he does not have the singular selfish ambition, win-at-all-costs mentality. Right after winning the NBA Finals, he was interviewed on the court, and he was asked how it felt to be an NBA champion. And his response was, it's good, it's good. Just imagine me saying this um, with like five octaves lower and with a Serbian accent. It's good, it's good. The job is done. We can go home now. Then a little later, uh, a little later on in the official post-game interview, he was asked again how it felt, and he said, it's an amazing feeling, but it's not everything in the world. <laughs> There's a bunch of things that I like to do. Nobody likes his job. Maybe they do. They're lying. <laughs> it's not the typical response one expects from somebody who just won the NBA Finals. And in a different interview, a little earlier in the series, before they had won, he made a few other comments that I think were actually tremendously helpful. Uh, He was congratulated on becoming a father. Um, This was earlier in the finals. And he was asked the question, you know, has becoming a father changed the way that you play? Or have you seen any of the skills of fatherhood translate into basketball? And after indicating that he thought that that was a ridiculous question, (laughs) he went on to say, and this is what I think is helpful, He says, basketball is not the main thing in my life, and it's probably never going to be. And to be honest, I like it because I have something more at home that is more important than basketball. See, because basketball is in its proper place, not only is he still able to succeed, 
He's actually able to enjoy it. See, the selfish ambition track, the envy track, achievement for its own sake, for the sake of being the best, it may lead us to accomplish amazing things, but it will keep us from being able to enjoy those things and has a tendency to make a mess of our lives. So think for a minute. Is there anything that you are obsessing about right now? Something that you have to get, something that you must achieve? Are you looking at things in their proper place? Yes, this would be nice to have, but it's not everything. Now, I mentioned Augustine earlier and his helpful distinction between wisdom and mere curiosity. But he also knows something of the emptiness of jealousy and selfish ambition. Before becoming a Christian at age 31, so he converted uh, later in life, Augustine's primary pursuit in life was becoming an orator. At a time in the Roman Empire when rhetoric was key in its governance, And to be a successful orator would have elevated him into the upper echelons of Roman society. Well, Augustine made it. He came from very humble beginnings, and he made his way all the way to the very top. He was actually appointed to the important position of professor of rhetoric in the city of Milan. And this was an extremely important appointment as the imperial court resided in Milan. And as a professor of rhetoric, he would have been called upon to deliver the official panegyric on the emperor, which was like the speech of all speeches in front of the, the imperial court and the emperor himself. This, had he done it well, would have made him a famous person in the entire Roman Empire. Well, he did. He had the honor of making the speech, and it went well. Uh, he reports that by telling of his mother's pride at his success in making the speech. Uh, so Monica, from whom we get the name Santa Monica, was very proud of her son, Augustine. But he, on the other hand, was completely disillusioned. He was a success. He had achieved everything that he had worked for. He could now go anywhere, do anything, have anything he wanted. But he was in a, he was in a, a pit of despair. He writes in his, his book, The Confessions, how unhappy I was and how conscious, he's speaking to the Lord here, how conscious you made me of my misery on that day when I was preparing to deliver a panegyric on the emperor. He says that on the day he was, he was going to deliver this speech, the speech that was going to make his life, he was racked with anxiety and fear. He was a nervous wreck. He wanted to succeed. He wanted to do well. He wanted to be praised for his efforts, thinking that if he was able to achieve what he set out to do, he would be filled with, quote, carefree cheerfulness. But he says that while he was stressing out on the day that he was going to give this speech, he encountered a beggar who happened to be drunk at the time and appeared to be far happier than he was in that given moment. And Augustine wrote, For what he had gained with a few coins obtained by begging, that is, the cheerfulness of temporal felicity, right? so momentary happiness, because the next day eventually comes and you tend to not feel very well, temporal felicity, I was going about to reach by painfully twisted and roundabout ways. True joy he had not, 
But my quest to fulfill my ambitions was, was much falser. There was no question that he was happy and I racked with anxiety. He had no worries. I was frenetic. And if anyone had asked me if I'd prefer to be merry or racked with fear, I would have answered to be merry. Yet, if he asked whether I would prefer to be a beggar like that man or the kind of person I then was, I would have chosen to be myself, a bundle of anxieties and fears. What an absurd choice. What would Augustine's ambition ultimately achieve for him? Temporary happiness, momentary felicity, fading joy. The same thing that this beggar's drink provided. It's a shadow of the real thing. See, Augustine wasn't unhappy because of a lack of success. He was unhappy because of what success provided him or what success failed to provide him. And this is the case every time we pursue the path of selfish ambition. It does not deliver. And so often when we, so often when we get the thing we are desiring, we end up despising it. I remember uh, reading a while back uh, Andre Agassi's autobiography. I also don't watch tennis, so anything I know about tennis comes from reading. Uh, but in his biography, Agassi talked about hating tennis. He absolutely hated it, but he felt trapped. He dominated the sport, but he despised it. This is often what selfish ambition and what worldly wisdom lead to. So again, consider, what in your life are you trying to achieve right now? Are there things that you're looking to and saying, if only I could have blank, then, then I would be okay. Then I would be happy. If only I could change this one thing, then everything would come together. Well, friends, any pursuit sought out as an end in itself it leads to bitterness and disillusionment. The grass typically isn't greener. And what is the nature of such wisdom? Well, James goes on to describe, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. All right, so James lays it out for us in descending order of negative power. He tells us that this false wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. First, it is earthly in that it is unable to take into account any sort of heavenly reality, any sort of theological truth. Its source and boundary is limited to the here and now. And he further declares that this wisdom is unspiritual. And Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 2.14, which can help shed some light on what James, uh, James is saying here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person, and natural here is the same word translated in our text as unspiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the only resource available to the unspiritual person is their fallen rationality. All they've got at their disposal is their three and a half pound brain that's been marred by the fall. And lastly, James asserts that the character of this false wisdom is demonic. Now he's not trying to say that jealousy or selfish ambition have any particular type of dark power. Instead, he's calling us to remember what made the devil the devil. 
right? It was pride. It was bitter envy. It was selfish ambition. It was wanting credit that wasn't his. And if this is true, if this is true of envy, if it's true that envy and selfish ambition are demonic, and friends, this is not something that we can take lightly. If, for example, you had an object, like a physical thing that was demonic, you probably wouldn't hang on to that. Like if someone came up to you after church and said, your shoes are from the devil, and you had reason to believe that that was true, not saying that that is true. But if you had reason to believe that, you wouldn't say like, oh, well, yeah, I only wear them sometimes. Or, you know, I, I keep them in the back of my closet for the most part. They're, they're, it's just kind of nice to have around. You, you wouldn't do that if you believed that. You'd get rid of those things. Well, here, the Holy Spirit through James is telling us that our bitter jealousy, that our selfish ambition are demonic. So what are we doing about that? Are we saying, you know, well, sometimes if I, if I pursue this, then I'm actually, like, it works. That's not really wise, is it? If this is the end result, this is not something, again, that we want to have anywhere near us. And when we are captivated by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, we place our path, we place ourselves on a path that leads to disorder and every vile practice, according to James 3.16. Now, the word disorder is an easy one for us to just kind of skip over. It's like, yeah, yeah, I, I like things orderly. I don't want disorder. Moving on. But, but this is a word that is chocked full of meaning. See, in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, and the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was written between uh, the 3rd and 1st centuries B.C., and it was the, the translation most often used by the New Testament authors. In Genesis 1-2 in the Septuagint, there is a word that describes sort of the pre-created nature of the universe before God began His creative work. And it's the same, it's a, the, 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 that word has the same root word that we hear, that we see here for disorder. So our translation of Genesis 1-2 is that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. So this little phrase we have here, without form, is the word that's being referred to. And the Hebrew words there are tov, tov vavov. That's fun. And it's essentially saying, like, without form and substance, yeah, that's a fine, that's a fine uh, translation, but there's a lot more to it. Another way for us to, to translate this would be to say that there was, there was chaotic nothingness. And you might be thinking, because you're a 21st century Western person, how can nothing be chaotic? But if you're reading this as an ancient Near Eastern person, you'd, you'd hear this and think, oh, that's bad. And that's the, that's the goal, right? That's what, that's what uh, the writer of Genesis is trying to get you at. That's what James here is pointing to. You know, it's like, uh, I heard one person describe it as like nothingness put in a blender. And it's just, it's just bad. Because it's taking two things that we inherently fear. Like on the one hand, nothingness. I think of nothingness for a minute. Even people in, in our culture who, who say that they have a worldview in which it accounts for nothingness, so that they're fine with, you know, uh, the idea that we die and we become nothing. They tend to not be consistent with that, though. I, oftentimes when someone makes that claim in the very next breath, they say, but I'll live on in the memories of those that I leave behind. 
Like, well, that's not really nothing. Or I'll, I'll be remembered by the work that I did. And again, we, we are deeply uncomfortable with this idea of nothing. Another thing that makes us deeply uncomfortable is chaos. The idea that you are not in control. You're walking into something and it's completely disordered. Throughout the Bible, the creative work of God is described as bringing order out of chaos. Our God does his good work by taking what feels chaotic and making it something. He gives it form and he makes it orderly. And that's like a good Presbyterian thing. Our, the Presbyterian life verses that we do things decently and, and, and in order. Um, we, we like that. Anyway. But that is, that is, the, that is the good work that, that God goes about doing. When we pursue things as ends in and of themselves, when we pursue things in the path, on, on the path of selfish ambition and jealousy, what James is saying that we're doing is we are unraveling God's good work. We are turning our back on him and, and, and trying to get at, tear at the very fabric of creation. This is no small thing. Now, with all of that said, does this mean that those who follow Jesus cannot and should not be ambitious? I don't think that that's what that means. See, God gives his people gifts with the expectation that we will use them. The Christian philosopher James Smith points out, says, our culture of ambition has only two speeds, either win or quit. But perhaps our ambition to win is a hunger to be noticed, maybe even a lifelong unarticulated hunger to be noticed by a father, to hear him say, well done, you did it. But that's not why he loves you. You don't have to win, but you also don't have to quit. You only have to quit performing. Quit imagining his love is earned. You can rest, but you don't have to quit. You just need to change while you play. See, when we follow Jesus, we don't need to be consumed by a desire for recognition because we already have God's verdict. Jesus played the game on our behalf, and he did it perfectly. He won. But not only that, he took on our losing record, and he suffered the penalty that that deserves. And because of this great exchange, God looks at us in the same way that he looked at Jesus, and he says, this, you, are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. I appreciate what James Smith says elsewhere. He says, Attainment is a goddess who quickly turns a cold shoulder. To aspire to friendship with God, however, is an ambition for something you could never lose. It is to get attention from someone who sees you and knows you and will never stop loving you. In short, it's the opposite of fickle human attention, which is temporal and temperamental. God's attention is not predicated on your performance. So should Christians stop trying to achieve? No. But our pursuits have a completely different orientation. They're pursued in a completely different direction. You can think of it as uh, giving versus performing in, in a loving relationship. 
Uh, one of the things that you do with people that you love is you give them gifts. Right? You want to do things for them to demonstrate that you, love, you f- that you love them. You find joy in their joy. And again, one of the ways that that's communicated is through gifts. Uh, Katie happens to be a very thoughtful and intentional gift giver. And I, I appreciate that. I've received many thoughtful and intentional gifts. She's the type of person that some, some marker is coming, an anniversary or a birthday or Christmas, whatever it may be, and she's thinking months in advance. She's listening intently. She, she is very, very thoughtful, and it's wonderful to receive a gift from her. But the reason that, that it is wonderful is not only that it's usually a cool thing, Uh, But it's an expression of her love. She's saying, I know you, and I love you, and I care about you, and I want you to find joy. If, however, she was pursuing that, she she was giving gifts with the intention of being seen as a good wife, that completely changes the orientation. If she says, well, my friend down the street gave her husband this, I'm going to give you something bigger, aren't I I better? Well, that's, that's a gross orientation, isn't it? If, on the other hand, it's pursued out of love, not for performance, not to receive a title, not to be seen in a particular light, but just out of love, oh, that's a wonderful thing. Well, friends, in the gospel, that is exactly what we are invited to do. We are freed from selfish ambition, but we don't have to quit. We can keep working, we can keep doing things but we're doing things out of love for, the, to, a love for the God who has lavished his love and his grace on us. We can keep playing, but we can do so with something that is actually achievable. So that is false wisdom. I want to spend some time now on the nature and fruit of true wisdom. And we see that in verses 17 and 18. I'm going to read those verses for us now. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The last two verses in this section provide a contrast to, false, to the false wisdom that James has been critiquing. True wisdom, says James, finds its origin in God. It is wisdom from above. And the spiritual wisdom is characterized by internal and external fruits. And James' list here is is bookended with some internal qualities. Wisdom from above is pure and it's sincere. It doesn't play to the crowd, but is a genuine expression of a heart directed toward God. Now, to say that, that wisdom is pure means that it's unstained by selfish ambition and, and uh, the selfish ambition that characterizes the wisdom of the world. And this, I think, is a good and necessary reminder to the church. Too many times we have taken on an ends-justifies-the-means mentality, elevating people into positions of leadership who have no business being there. People driven by selfish ambition and a desire to be recognized. Too often we have been blinded by gifts, and the results have been disastrous. But the wisdom from above is pure. It is not prone to, uh, to grandstanding or outward displays. And people who are truly wise are peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial. Right? 
peace, gentleness, mercy. When you hear those words, who comes to mind? We're in church, so the correct answer is Jesus, right? (laughs) Jesus, whose name is the Prince of Peace, who describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart, who in his great compassion for us doesn't give us the punishment that our sin deserves, but instead shows us mercy. Anything we could rightly call wise will also be merciful. Seeking to imitate the God who is rich in mercy, who because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. Now, false wisdom overflows into disorder and every vile practice, but true wisdom bears a harvest of righteousness, and it's sown in peace by those who make peace. How do we know if a person is wise? Let's go to the question at the very top. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. We know that a person is wise by his or her good conduct and humility. Now, the phrase translated good conduct here is is interesting. Often the word translated good in the New Testament is the Greek word agathos, which has a connotation of being upright or righteous or useful. But the word used in this verse is the word kalos, a word that could also be translated as beautiful. And conduct here could be translated as life or a way of life. So what James is telling us is that the life of wisdom is a life marked by beauty, a true beauty that far transcends the images of fame or success that we're continually confronted with. So we are to judge wisdom not by eloquent speech or by intelligence, but by a well-ordered, a beautiful life. In other words, for example, if you wanted to determine whether or not I was wise, you wouldn't do so primarily by judging my sermons, you do so by judging my life. Now, that is not an invitation for all of you to begin peering into every aspect of my life. I'd love some, a degree of space. However, that's the mark, though. The mark isn't how eloquent a person is. The mark is how they live their lives. And wisdom is evidenced here by a particular character trait in verse 13. Meekness. Humility. A person who truly understands God's holiness and his or her own sin will inevitably be a humble person. He or she won't be envious or prone to selfish ambition because that person will be able to see all of life as a gift of God's grace, right? That is wisdom. As I've been studying this text and preparing for the sermon, I've been mulling over that question, you know, who is wise among you? And I've been thinking about who is, who is wise? Who is a wise person in my life? And, and thankfully, I have many uh, godly examples, many godly examples here in this church. Uh, but there's one person that, that really came to mind over and over again as I began to think, you know, who is wise? And that person was a, a pastor that I knew um, named Amos Overton. 
Uh, I first met Amis when I was 19, serving at a missions conference in Switzerland. Um, my guess was that he was in his 60s at the time, um, and at that point he was serving as an associate pastor. He'd begun kind of taking a step back in his ministry. Um, he was serving at a, a mainline Presbyterian church in, uh, in Ventura, which is where I'm from. Uh, and one of the things that, that really stuck out when I first met him is how he just instantly took an interest in me. And it wasn't because I was unique. He, that's just the way that he approached people. Someone made a, made a comment at his funeral, he, he died last year, that uh, it was a beautiful thing to be known by Amis, and it didn't, take, it didn't take very much interaction. So I was really struck by the fact that, that he took an interest in me, and, and, and some of that, too, may have been motivated by the fact that I was from Ventura, I was contemplating Reformed theology. And when I met him, I just finished my, my first, uh, first year of college, and I was majoring in biblical studies, and I thought I knew far more than I did. And I think that kind of comes with the territory. Uh, and so it's kind of cringe, it, it makes me cringe to think of what I may have said to him at that point. But one of the things that I remember from our interactions is that Amos took the time to actually listen. You know, he kept asking me about the things that I was learning. He asked me intentional questions and just heard from me. And a consensus among all the people that I've interacted uh, with who knew Amos was that he was basically a brain with legs. Um, like his, his recall of uh, facts about the Bible or church history or theology, it was quite amazing. But there was nothing showy about him. He was extremely knowledgeable, but he was even more humble. And knowledge for him wasn't an end in itself. He was passionate about Jesus. And so he learned in order to know more and more about his Savior. Amos faithfully served his church. He loved his wife well. He cared for his children. He was peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and all of that amounted to a beautiful life, a life of wisdom. Now, as I mentioned, he died last year, and he died with some pretty amazing accomplishments under his belt. But he will be remembered as a wise man completely apart from any of his achievements. He loved Jesus, and he lived a beautiful life in the meekness of wisdom. I don't know about you, but that's how I hope to be remembered. Hopefully not in a way that is selfish or jealous. But by the grace of God, I, 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 I want that to be my legacy. That I must decrease and he must increase. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the gift of wisdom. Lord, we recognize that you are the source of all true wisdom. And Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, give us what we need to tap into that source. Lord, may we be convinced of your great love for us so that we can achieve without the burden of performing but that we can use the gifts that you've given us in freedom. 
constantly looking back to you and praising you for your goodness. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we have pursued the path of selfish ambition. Forgive us for our jealousy, for our envy, the, the, the many things that have a tendency to distract us from you. But Lord, give us what we need to pursue you, to live a beautiful life in the meekness of wisdom. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.